0: Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. Coming live from London, this is Owen Bennett-Jones. So, after all the build-up, President Trump has decertified Iran. That's to say he's not been prepared to sign a document saying that Iran is in compliance with the nuclear agreement it reached with the world's big powers. In a news conference, Mr Trump said Iran was not abiding by the spirit of the deal.
1: I am announcing today that we cannot and will not make this certification. We will not continue down a path whose predictable conclusion is more violence, more terror, and the very real threat of Iran's nuclear breakout. That is why I am directing my administration to work closely with Congress and our allies to address the deal's many serious flaws so that the Iranian regime can never threaten the world With nuclear weapons.
0: The Iranian President Hassan Rouhani questioned whether Mr Trump could unilaterally decertify an agreement signed by several parties and said Tehran would continue to abide by the deal.
2: As
3: long as our rights are guaranteed, as long as our interests are served, as long as we benefit from the nuclear deal, we will respect and comply with the deal. We have cooperated with UN Nuclear Watchdog and will continue to do so in the framework of the nuclear deal and our international commitments.
0: Now, President Trump said Iran is not complying with the deal. That's what decertification meant, even though his Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, said that uh, Iran is in Compliance, technical compliance, he says. So how can that be? Here's our chief international correspondent, Lise Doucette.
4: President Trump mentioned two cases, he said, where Iran had... Um, had gone beyond, its, had, had violated its obligations under the deal. But in those two cases that he mentioned concerning heavy water, key pro- part in the process of nuclear enrichment, it was quickly rectified. And we heard from Frederica Mogherini saying, absolutely, Iran was in compliance with the deal. There have been eight reports of the, of the uh, IAEA, the nuclear watchdog, that Iran has complied. It has kept its part of the bargain. But it's in the word of the spirit of the deal. And I think... In discussions about this, in, in a more than 150-page document, there's a preamble that talks about how this nuclear deal will contribute to an improvement of relationships and dialogues on other issues in the region. The Iranians point out that it does not say it will lead to or cause, it's contribute, and they are hoping that there will be discussions on other issues um, between all sides, but not the imposition as what President Trump is trying to do today.
0: Now, there's there's another, another point. The certification is not there. And and yet people are saying, you know, he hasn't abandoned the deal. No, because right. so what's that? What's the distinction there? How, I mean, if he abandoned it, what what would that mean? What would that look like?
4: If he abandons it, the abandonment will take place if Congress, which has 60 days now to consider this issue, and they're already talking about it, if Congress reintroduces sanctions, applies new sanctions concerning the nuclear deal, then the deal is effectively dead as far as the United States is concerned. And the worry is that even though the Europeans, the Russians and the Chinese are saying they will do everything possible to save the deal, without the United States, it will be weakened, particularly. Particularly on the economic front, because Iran has found out, and the Europeans have found out, that there are so many of the world's transactions through multinational corporations that go through US banks that companies and banks have been afraid to run afoul of existing UN sanctions for ballistic missiles and other things outside of the nuclear deal.
0: Yeah, it's worth worth saying we we had uh, Jack Straw on NewsHour Extra this week, former British Foreign Secretary, and he said he he thinks that the West is the West is not in compliance because of this problem with getting deals done through banks because the Americans say if you do anything with Iran we'll we'll hammer you'll we'll hammer your bank
4: well, what had happened during President Obama's administration is that President Obama and Secretary Kerry took an active role in urging the banks, urging U.S. banks, and trying to reassure international banks that they would not fall foul of the law, that they would not be punished under U.S. sanctions. But it didn't really work because there was always that risk. Now there's an even greater risk because for this deal to work for Iranians, there has to be economic benefits.
0: And that was Lee's Doucette. Well, let's hear now from Tehran. Dr. Syed Mohammed Morandi is a professor of North American politics there at the University of Tehran. What did he make of the Trump statement?
5: It's obvious that Trump is playing with the truth. The accusations are nonsense. This severely weakens the uh, uh, JCPOA, the nuclear agreement, And I think that uh, it sends a message to the international community that you simply cannot trust the United States. You cannot rely on the United States. If the United States negotiates something, then tomorrow it may back out of any agreement that it makes. And uh, Iran obviously is not going to renegotiate the nuclear agreement. And this statement itself, I think, shows that Iran should under no circumstances in future negotiate over any other issue with the likes of Trump because he's simply untrustworthy.
0: As I understand the US position now, he's not uh, certified. He, he's, he's, he's declined to certify that Iran's in compliance. But he's not actually, yet anyway, walked away from the deal entirely. So where does that leave Tehran?
5: By sanctioning the Iranian armed forces, that is a major breach of the agreement itself. Because according to the JCPOA, the United States in response to the concessions that the Iranians made over its nuclear program. If you look at articles 26 to 29, the United States is supposed to facilitate the normalization of trade and business with Iran. And that has not happened. And now he's doing the reverse. Under Obama, the United States refrained from allowing Iranian trade to normalize. Trump has taken it a step further. And now by doing this, He is scaring away any potential investor in Iran. So if there's any hope for this agreement to remain intact, it depends on Europe. If they condemn the United States, that's useless by itself. But if they are determined to protect their interests, if they're determined to protect their companies and their businessmen and women who want to do trade within the framework of international law, they're willing to punish the United States when they unjustly Punish their businesses, then I think there's hope for the JCPOA. Otherwise, I think the JCPOA is its life is gradually coming to an end.
0: And if you think that, do you believe that uh, Iran will resume its nuclear program?
5: Yes, if the agreement comes to an end, if the JCPOA becomes a worthless piece of paper, then of course Iran will restart its nuclear program and probably invest in it more than it did before. Because if you go
0: down that route, I mean, there was an American retired uh, American general talking just the other day saying, basically, that leads to war.
5: Well, if the United States thinks that they can win a war against Iran, you know, that's uh, that's another thing altogether. The Iranians are not going to give up their rights as a sovereign and independent country. The Iranians have shown goodwill. They've made many sacrifices. Many in Iran believe that the JCPOA was not a good deal. But when the government, when the state decided to sign up to it, everyone agreed that this is our commitment. The United States has to commit itself to this agreement.
0: And that was Dr. Syed Mohammed Mirandi speaking from Tehran. While well, President Trump may not have much support in this On this in Europe, we'll be getting European reaction just now. But in the U.S. Congress, there are some who are supporting him, like Republican Congressman Francis Rooney from Florida, who has suggested legislation to create a U.S. body to oversee Iranian compliance. I asked him first for his reaction to the president's remarks.
1: I think he's right. The agreement as it stands right now does not serve United States interests.
0: OK, so the point is, uh, first to make, I guess, is that the U.S. went into this agreement. as a solemn international commitment. Uh, do you think the United States should walk away from its international
1: commitments? The United States didn't go into this agreement. President Obama did. It was never ratified by the United States Senate.
0: Yes, well, the president has the power to make agreements that are considered <laughs> treaties in international law. So,
1: it's, You know, that's kind of a vague, vague point. I'm not so 100% sure that would stand up if it were litigated. Well, the Supreme, regardless... the Supreme Court
0: has ruled that. I mean, are you really saying, you can't be saying, can you, that if a president makes an agreement that the rest of the world can't
1: rely on it? Well, what I'm saying is, since that agreement, the IRGC has continued to wreak mayhem across the Middle East. The Revolutionary Guard. Iran has continued to to strengthen this nefarious Shiite Silk Road between Hezbollah and Lebanon over to them through Iraq and Syria. They have launched ballistic missiles. They have tried to expand their ballistic missile program. They have had some technical violations of this agreement, which I think the president might have touched on some of them, which, uh, while harmless enough in themselves, reflect a lack of good faith. And, you know, they've continued to to wreak mayhem in Iraq as we're trying to build a nation over there. That's why I recently threw in the towel and I said, I think we might as well recognize an independent Kurdistan because the Shiites are going to own Mesopotamia.
0: Right, but I mean, all those things you complain about, with the exception of the technical issues, which we could talk about in a minute, but uh, I mean, th- they're nothing to do with the nuclear deal. So, so uh, surely, except this, except for
1: know. the fact, except for the fact that the nuclear deal was destined to be, as as that preamble says, a harbinger of greater cooperation on a broad range broad range of things, and that hasn't happened. And it's has happened it hasn't happened because of Iran, not because of the West.
0: And w- w- so, you you don't agree with the Secretary of State when he says that. Iran is in technical, and I should say the International Nuclear Energy Agency of the UN and everyone else in Europe and so on. You you don't agree when they all say Iran is in technical compliance?
1: No, yes, I do agree. They are in technical compliance right now. And technical compliance means compliance, right? Well, yeah, but they have had some defects before. And I'll tell you what, if I had been Iran and I was serious about good faith improvement of my relationship in the world and using taking this this opportunity of this agreement to do that, I certainly wouldn't have had those technical violations. I certainly would have allowed Russia to go into Iran and launch uh, ballistic missiles. I certainly wouldn't have uh, resumed my own ballistic missile program. You know, just this week, the House Foreign Affairs Committee voted bipartisan wise to develop a set of sanctions against anybody that supplies parts or material or technology to iran 's ballistic missile program
0: are you concerned that the uh, you know, decades long relationship between Europe and the United States could splinter on this
1: well what I get concerned about europe and I lived in Europe for three years as an ambassador and is the this that the quest for Uh, multilateralism relative in in, in subjugation of national sovereignty could go too far. And that combined with like President Obama's desire to get an agreement at all cost gets us into this kind of fix where we we could have a better agreement. We we could be inspecting the military bases. We could have a time frame that's longer. You know, um, we could have included, okay, In the spirit of the agreement, if uh, you're not going to have nuclear weapons and we're going to give you billions of dollars, which we already did give the billions of dollars, by the way, uh, and we're going to open up trade with you, then no ballistic missiles, man. That kind of thing. There's a lot of things that could have been in there had we driven a harder bargain. Yeah, but you didn't. (laughs) That's why we're mad now.
0: And that was Francis Rooney, Republican congressman there from Florida. Coming up, ahead of the Communist Party Congress, our China editor looks at political control
6: over the next five years. China is striving to perfect its authoritarianism with big data and artificial intelligence. It monitors the mood of its 1.4 billion citizens in real time. Privately, many party officials are confident that their cocktail of Confucius, Marx and fear is the best political system. And some headlines, as you've been hearing, President
0: Trump has refused to certify the international nuclear deal Tehran signed in 2015, but has stopped short of pulling out of it. Uh, Reacting to President Trump's speech, the European Union's foreign policy chief said the US president had no right to terminate an agreement adopted unanimously by the UN Security Council, and Russia said the task now was to save the deal.
2: You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour with Owen Bennett-Jones in London and me, James kamara Sami in Moscow. Now, if you weren't listening to yesterday's programme, you won't know why I'm here in Russia. It's because the century, the century, the centenary indeed of the Bolshevik revolution is approaching and I'm finding out what Russians think about their revolutionary past and their politically rather more placid present. I've been following the route of a writer, Alexander Redishev, whose seminal work of sociology, Journey from St Petersburg to Moscow, inspired the revolutionaries to radical change. And like him, I've been stopping off at villages along the way. Now, in part one, we heard from a disgruntled trucker and a Stalin-loving farmer. The next leg took me off the beaten track and deep into the woods in a region where many villages have been dying out and an encounter with those who might revive rural Russia, the next generation. (coughs) Well, I've now come about halfway from St. Petersburg to Moscow, and I'm in a school, as you can probably hear. The kids are very friendly. Здравствуйте, they say to me hello. But uh, despite the smiling faces, they're actually, most of them, from poor and disadvantaged backgrounds. They've come from miles around, because a lot of the, the village schools have closed. We're in a, a village called Likoshina. And uh, it has an interesting link to the Russian Revolution, actually, because Sergei Chekhonin, the man who invented the uh, iconic hammer and sickle design, was actually born here. They're very proud of him at this school. They have a little exhibit of his work in one of the classrooms, in fact. So, what do the kids here know about their country's history? <laughs>
6: <laughs> so the first girl, I, we're asking the kids here, we're in the, class, in the
2: geography class here and asking all the kids what they know about the October Revolution. Uh, shake of the head from the first girl. Ati, you No.
7: <laughs> he says no in English,
2: but he doesn't know anything about it. Ati. Uh, you? He doesn't remember. I'm sure he knew it in the past. Let's have a look. Ati. Uh, you? Another no. No. Uh, Lenin? He was a communist.
8: <laughs>
2: famous, very famous person in Russia. Uh, anyone else? This. no She Doesn't know what the revolution was. And you? No.
7: <laughs>
2: so they do know they do know Chihunin who was the guy who came up with the hammer and sickle teacher says that uh, they don't really talk much about politics so perhaps they're a bit shy as well so yeah <laughs> goodbye <laughs> The very friendly kids from school number two in the village of uh, Likoshina. Well, interestingly, although they didn't know much about Lenin or the revolution, they did know plenty about God. Now, Orthodox Christianity figures prominently not just on their curriculum but uh, across the country. And, and later on in the programme, we're going to be hearing from the, the final stop of my journey from St. Petersburg to Moscow and from a village which has been transformed after its local church discovered that a, a very significant family had worshipped there but uh, first let's discuss what we've just been hearing about. Kirill Rogov is a political analyst based here in Moscow. I asked him "What does the fact that those children aren't taught about Lenin or indeed the Bolshevik revolution tell us?
9: I think it's still a lot because it's amazing for me also that it's surprising and amazing that there's not any discussions, and celebrations, any commemorations of this date of of uh, October Revolution. Uh, at the same way there's no, there was no uh, discussion and celebration of first February of nineteen seventeen uh, February Revolution, and the same uh, I think we, we the same way we saw last year when it was twenty five years from the last uh, Russian democratic revolution uh, in nineteen.
2: The, the August coup that almost overthrew yes, exactly, Gorbachev. Yeah, exactly,
9: exactly. So, but we can understand uh, what is the point of, uh, of of official propaganda when we uh, look at uh, uh, at holidays. They they celebrate and commemorate and so on and discuss. The first is 9th of May. This is a victory of a uh, Soviet Soviet victory in uh, World War Two. The day of Soviet victory in World War Two, and the next the second is uh, uh, in November. The, the day of national unity this is a commemoration anniversary of uh, Russian victory and Russian uh, liberation of Moscow after Polish invasion in 17th century. 17th century. Yes, 17th century. So, in both cases uh, we see uh, the the celebration is is focused on the the moments when uh, the nation and uh, the state were together, were united and uh, fighting against external enemy. So, this is the pattern Kremlin is celebrating. So anything that talks about
2: internal turmoil, like a yeah. revolution, yeah, no, is not no, mentioned. Nothing
9: about this. Nothing about the situation when when people are against the state, when they try to choose their their, their, their fate, uh, of, uh, and when they change their the the uh, regime. Yeah, this is this is not uh, celebrated. end
2: what then is this telling us about how Russia today is going to develop?
9: yes this is uh, it uh, tells it a lot and you will see that this idea of of uh, I, um, I call this na- uh, state nationalism is uh, the main idea of of Putin's regime uh, that uh, that nation is great when it is together the state and nation are together in fight with external enemy uh, this is the, the the moment when it is uh, uh, what what uh, um, what is called rally around the flag yes the, these situations this is what we, they propagate.
2: Rally around the flag. That's a a, a phrase that I think uh, will be familiar certainly to our listeners in America. And is what we're seeing in Russia in any way similar to American exceptionalism is this Russian exceptionalism yes of
9: course it is a little bit exceptionalism because both nations are feeling uh, uh, to uh, themselves to be great power and this is tradition yes you, 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 this is tradition and you know that uh, a lot of people in Russia are saying that they uh, if if not to live in Russia they prefer to live in the United States because uh, they are saying because we we, uh, we want to live in great power country
2: it's interesting i mean I've lived in both countries, Russia and the United States, and I'm always struck by the parallels, yet here we have a period of apparently great tension between the two. I mean, is anything in the way Russia is developing now, does that lead you to conclude how that relationship is going to develop? Yeah, I think
9: that, that this, this uh, confrontation of great na- nations, uh, of great powers, is the moment when people within the country could feel them to be part of the great power we are confronting with, with another great power.
2: That's dangerous, though, isn't it, potentially?
9: Yes, of course, uh, but it's very important for, uh, for Russia, for domestic politics in Russia, and we see that it is important for domestic politics in the United States to some extent or less extent, but no, not so much, but but also important. And
2: when we look ahead then to, uh, you know, Russia in, you know, 10, 15 years, perhaps people are starting already to look ahead to a post-Putin period, even though it's almost certain he will be re-elected.
9: Yeah. What, what kind of yes.
2: what yeah. kind of leadership do you predict
9: yeah um, uh, the, uh, another important thing is in Russia that of course uh, people are feeling here to be a part of great power but it also depends on, on their feeling about uh, uh, economic performance and now this this feeling this state nationalism is um, stimulated also by uh, these uh, prosperous years of, of, of uh, when uh, oil prices were very high and uh, Russia got a huge money from from international market, uh, for, um, a, a huge export. Uh, and this is part of this feeling. And when, now when we see that uh, situation in, in Russia is not so good, is worsening, we see that people are saying that it is important to, to, to live in a wealthy country more than in great power.
2: That's the political analyst Kirill Rogov. I'll be back a bit later on in the programme. So do stay with us here on NewsHour from the BBC World Service.
0: You're listening to a podcast edition of NewsHour, available twice each day, straight after the live edition of the programme. And if you're enjoying that, then why not take a look at other podcasts from the BBC World Service. Uh, The documentary brings to life stories and investigations from across the globe. Or we've got witness, first-hand accounts from important moments in history. Coming up next, more reaction to the US policy shift on Iran. But first, uh, reports from Western Kenya say two people have been shot by police as tension builds ahead of the planned presidential poll rerun after the uh, first election was annulled by the Supreme Court. Uh, But this time round, it seems that the main opposition candidate, Raila Odinga, is pulling out, saying the poll will be rigged. He's in London just now, and NewsHour's Rebecca Kesby asked why he decided to withdraw from the presidential race he had tried so hard to win.
3: We felt that uh, there's no point in participating in
0: a process that is already
3: flawed. whose outcome is already predetermined. That's the reason why we decided to pull out to, and give more time for better preparation. You see, the Supreme Court was very clear in its ruling He said that uh, it nullified the election because of the irregularities and illegalities which were rampant in the process and uh, directed the uh, electoral commission to do an election in accordance with the constitution and the laws of the country. What does the government do? Instead of ensuring that the laws are, are observed, they change the laws midstream. Most of the very fundamental issues that came up in court have not been addressed.
10: So what would persuade you, if anything, to still take part in this ballot on the 26th?
3: We had given them what we called the reducible minimum conditions that need to be fulfilled for there to be free and fair elections, and they have not addressed them. If they address the reducible minimums, yes, we will be. The government has also come up with these laws, which are taking us back to 1997. And you know that those kind of laws are the ones which created problems.
10: You're referring to these parliamentary efforts this week to get clarity, and some are saying that if you pull out of that ballot, then Uhuru Kenyatta should be automatically declared the president.
3: That is just part of the amendment. The main one is that they are going back to the manual voter tallying and transmission, which is what was abused in 2007. Okay. That caused the lives of so many innocent Kenyans.
10: I'm glad you bring that up, sir, because this is the real concern, isn't it? That that post-election violence where at least 1,000 people were killed, some would say that it's irresponsible to pull out of this vote, given the history of violence. And again, today we've had more protests than police using tear gas in Nairobi, and Kisumu, Mombasa. I mean, if you don't take part in this vote, aren't you abandoning the political process?
3: We are basically trying to avoid chaos in the country. Because if we do participate and it is rigged the way it was done in 2007, then the consequences will be similar, if not worse.
10: But you're drawing so much criticism of every electoral process in Kenya right now. I mean, this could plunge the country into a constitutional crisis. What do you think you should be doing to create calm in Kenya?
3: We are the victims. I'm saying that uh, so long as there's cheating and rigging of an electoral process, there will be no peace in the country. We are the victims. We are not the villains.
0: News, Aaron. Back now to our main story President Trump's decertifying Iran's compliance with the 2015 nuclear agreement, a move that's led to some strong international reaction, not least from other parties to the deal. And first up, uh, the European Union's foreign policy chief, Federica Mogherini. She says President Trump has no right to terminate the deal with Iran.
4: It is not a bilateral agreement, it does not belong to any single country and it is not up to any single country to terminate it. It is a multilateral agreement which was unanimously endorsed by the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2231. It is a robust deal that provides guarantees and a strong monitoring mechanism so that Iran's nuclear program is and will remain exclusively for civilian purposes only. We cannot afford, as international community, as Europe for sure, to dismantle a nuclear agreement that is working and delivering, especially now.
0: In Iran, meanwhile, President Rouhani said President Trump's statement was uh, full of insults and baseless accusations and that Tehran would continue to abide by it as long as its interests were secured. And the International Atomic Energy Agency, which monitors Iran's compliance, said in a statement that Iran was cooperating with all the monitoring measures that it was subject to, subject to, and uh, the IEA said it was the world's most robust nuclear verification regime. Well, on the other hand, the announcement was welcomed by the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. I congratulate President Trump for his courageous decision today. He boldly confronted Iran's terrorist regime. Germany, like uh, France and Britain, is one of the parties to the accord. And Omid Nouripour is the foreign affairs spokesman of the Green Party in Germany and himself German-Iranian. What does he think of what President Donald Trump announced?
11: I'm scared. Uh, We have a president now just ignoring the fact that there has been a diplomatic solution for the next 10 years. And uh, what he's doing in these days is uh, just destroying any attitude that diplomacy could help but there is a one huge problem with the decertifying of the iran deal no deal means no inspections this is the first and fastest track of iran to get a bomb the way he started this this evening is uh, the fastest way of the nuclearization of the middle east which is the next region to us europe and as you understand it when do inspections stop now Of course, there are some ways to prevent that the whole deal is gone. It starts with lobbying the Congress. I know a lot of people in the Congress, and we hope that there won't be new sanctions there. But we can see that the hardliners in Iran are going to be encouraged. The problem in these days is that it's going the wrongest imaginable way. There is no choice for the Europeans but to come together with China and Russia and try to save the deal. Right. And so from your knowledge of the German system, how
0: will Germany
11: go about trying to
0: protect the deal?
11: We're going to talk to our European partners and try to find out if there is a way to lobby in in the Congress to prevent new sanctions, which would kill the deal. And we're going to go on talking to the Russians and the Chinese because nobody in Europe as an in interest of a nuclear Iran and the proliferation in the Middle East, would means that there could be the bomb in Saudi Arabia and Turkey too.
0: And what do you think is the likely outcome? I mean, how do you see this? Not, not what you hope, but what you think will happen.
11: I think that there is a possibility to save the deal. I think there are a lot of reasonable people in the Congress, also in the GOP. And I think that we can't get these people and convince them to keep the deal because there won't be a better one. And there has been a lot of wrong things being announced by President Trump in this speech, for example, that Iran's regime would have collapsed without a deal, which is absolutely wrong. One of the reasons why we came together was the Iranian strength in the region. And I'm quite sure that Russia and China also have no interest of getting a nuclearized Middle East. So I think there is a great possibility that we can keep the deal. But it's going to get a hard way to go after the speech. Do you share the
0: president's concerns about some of the issues he raised? I mean, in particular, for example, Iranian missile capability that's you know, a much bigger threat to Europe than it is to the United States down the road.
11: Do you share those concerns? Iran is a highly aggressive regional and international player. There's no doubt that Iran is not a good guy in the Middle East. It's absolutely clear that Iran is not our best friend and our partner. There is a huge problem with regional policy they are driving. There is a huge problem with the human rights situation in Iran. There is a huge problem with the way they are talking about Israel and that Israel could be wiped out of the map. But the choice we had, and this is why I always supported the deal, was between two bad solutions and one of them is nuclear and and I would always take the one which is not nuclear. And this is what happened, and this is why diplomacy has been driven by a lot of wise people for the last months and for more than a decade when we had the negotiations with Iran. So, yes, Iran is a bad guy. Yes, I agree what the president said about some of the things Iran is doing. Some of them were hoax. But at the end of the day, the meaning of the deal, the sense of the deal is to prevent a nuclear Iran. And this is why we have to keep
1: it.
0: And that was uh, Omid Nouripour, their Foreign Affairs Spokesman for the German Greens. Well, uh, Russia had warned Donald Trump's administration not to pull out of the deal. That's what they said before Mr. Trump's announcement. They said it would harm predictability, security, stability and nonproliferation around the world. So what are they saying now? Uh, back to James Kumrasamy, who's in Moscow. What are the Russians saying?
2: They're not happy, obviously, Owen, but they're, they're being pretty calm, I think, about uh, their reaction. They, they saw it coming. They, they're saying, the foreign ministry officials here are saying, look, we're going to do our best to keep the dialogue, to intensify dialogue with America, to convince them uh, not to pull out of this deal, which they think is a big mistake, although others have been saying, look, this just shows America is becoming more and more isolated. Um, but, yeah, in general terms, they're not happy, but they think they can work towards a solution. We will see whether that's the case or not. Now, as we've discussed Early on in the programme, I'm here because I've been on this journey from St Petersburg to Moscow 100 years after the Russian Revolution. Now, time for the final instalment, which took me to a pretty unremarkable village with one remarkable centrepiece, a church which, during the communist times, was just a drab municipal building. It's now been restored to something approaching fairy tale glory. It's a place of worship and much more, as the local priest, Father Andrei, was very happy to show me come about an hour and a half or so from Moscow now and I'm in a small village called Turginova. We've driven about 30, 40 kilometres from the main highway past other towns, small houses everywhere, very quiet. There's hardly anyone in this village, but what there is is one huge church rising up, yellow and green, extremely impressive. And next to it, another yellow and green building, which is a, a spiritual centre that is part of the whole Church complex. <laughs> Father Andre giving us a remarkable tour of the facilities they have here. A swimming pool, popping into the sauna. Wow, lovely. Absolutely tip top facilities. <laughs> and it also has some unusual, even unorthodox, touches. So this place that almost seems like a fairy tale has its own museum of angels. We're in a room with angels are everywhere. There are glass angels, there are china angels, there are cardboard angels, there are angels on the side of cups. So I've been invited now, there are some angel wings uh, over on a, a whiteboard and I've been invited to have my photograph taken in front of them so I shall be For a brief few seconds, Angelic. So you don't find this in many uh, churches in Russia, probably in anywhere, actually. We're actually in a workshop that's part of the the centre that's been built specially for this church. You just hear the uh, machine there that's making parts of planes from wood. Kids come in here, they study, they make planes... It's all part of the extra, the extra funding that has allowed this to happen. Father Andrei tells me that the presidential administration instructs charities to fund his church. Sometimes he adds companies donate part of their profits. He's sure that if it hadn't been for the presidential administration, he wouldn't have facilities anything like the ones he does. So why on earth does the presidential administration get involved in helping out a village church? Well, it turns out that Vladimir Putin's parents and grandparents were actually baptised there, a fact that was discovered by chance or perhaps by a miracle. Here's Father Andre again.
8: When I was appointed here in the year 2000, we had no idea about the history of this church. So I asked one of my parishioners to look into the local archives to find out more. And she found out that a peasant family, the Putins, had lived here since the 16th century. His grandmothers and grandfathers were baptised and married here, and Putin's mother and father were baptised in this church. After that, the church was closed down.
2: So what did you think when you found out that this church was directly connected with President Putin?
8: Of course, this information made me feel a little nervous. What a responsibility. Our place has a link to the family of such an influential man. And, of course, it was the will of God that this information reached the president and touched him. He responded as a decent human being, someone who remembers his roots. He heeded our request for help, and we thank God that he helped to restore the church.
2: How much help has President Putin been to to this church and this region?
8: The President has been here twice, in 2011 and last year. To us, this means a lot. At Christmas in 2011, we had a chance to talk to him face-to-face, and he promised more help, and we were able to build our spiritual and cultural centre, which you've seen. The centre caters for local residents, not just the churchgoers. But when people come in, they use the fitness center and other facilities. They may meet and say hello to the priest, and that's their chance to develop their spirituality and maybe visit the church also. This is the first step in reviving our spiritual tradition.
2: What's your impression of President Putin? You've met him, haven't you? What what do you think of him? Is he a spiritual man?
8: He's a role model for me. He's highly educated and talks easily to anyone. While I'm thinking about what I'm going to say, while I worry about every word, he starts the conversation and it flows easily. He has a natural charm. It's a rare quality and it comes from the heart. It cannot be faked or learned. This is the quality of his heart and his soul. Also, he will never miss the slightest detail. He remembers everything we've discussed. He will always remember his promises. For us, he is our benefactor, and each visit for us is a joy. Benefactor means someone who does good.
2: And that was Father Andrei, the priest at the church in the Putin family village of Turginova, talking about that uh, earthly benefactor in the Kremlin and how important he's been to his church's revival. That's all from my journey from St. Petersburg to Moscow. But uh, do stay with us here. Plenty more to come on the programme. You're listening to Hour from the BBC World Service.
0: And now let's have a quick look at what's coming up on the World Service.
6: After news hour, it's BBC Trending, and that's followed by World
2: Football. We look back on a feverish week of World Cup qualifiers in the Americas. We're with the United States as they were eliminated, ending a run of seven consecutive World Cup appearances.
10: On Saturday at 8.30 GMT, it's the Cultural Frontline. A new documentary film secretly shot on a smartphone that sheds light on the treatment of inmates in Australia's controversial Manus Island Detention Centre.
6: And online now, you can hear science in action. Krakatoa must be the most famous
8: volcanic corruption of all time. A remnant held in the vaults of a London college since the 1880s may hold the chemical secrets to reveal what made the event so devastating.
6: Go to bbcworldservice.com slash science in action.
0: And a reminder of the main news just now. President Trump has refused to certify the international nuclear deal Tehran signed in 2015, but has stopped short of pulling out of it. Uh, The Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, meanwhile questioned whether Mr Trump could unilaterally decertify a multilateral agreement and said Tehran would continue to abide by the deal. As long as our rights are guaranteed...
3: As long as our interests are served, as long as we benefit from the nuclear deal, we will respect and comply with the deal. We have cooperated with UN Nuclear Watchdog and will continue to do so in the framework of the nuclear deal and our international commitments.
0: You're listening to NewsHour. All this week, we've been hearing a series of reports from our China editor, Carrie Gracie, ahead of next week's Communist Party Congress. In her last essay, she assesses the future of Xi Jinping's presidency and how China will weather the economic storm it could face in the next five years.
6: Today, Beijing's ancient grey brick observatory overshadows a traffic-choked ring road But once, it was a platform for China's emperors to look up and observe the movements of the heavenly bodies. In the mid-17th century, a European suddenly appeared with better instruments than the court astronomers. It was what the Americans might call a Sputnik moment. Of course, the real Sputnik moment was in 1957, when the Soviet Union launched the world's first satellite and caught the Americans unprepared. Some say China's rise is an even bigger challenge for the world's liberal democracies. Not just a competitor in space or cyberspace or the South China Sea, China may become the world's largest economy within the next five years. It's a challenge many in the West never expected, or they thought growth would bring the kind of social and political change that gradually dismantled authoritarian rule. No sign so far. Other governments complain that China's forced technology transfers and market distortions are a threat to the world trading system. But what's illegal and what's unfair are no longer the whole story. Now, the one-party state that some argue could never innovate aims at innovation in everything from supercomputers to driverless cars, biotech and mobile payments. Long gone are the days when China was satisfied to corner the world market in zips, socks and plastic toys. Politics too. China is striving to perfect its authoritarianism with big data and artificial intelligence. It monitors the mood of its 1.4 billion citizens in real time and refines surveillance and propaganda accordingly. Privately, many party officials are confident that their cocktail of Confucius... Marx and fear is the best political system available. They laugh at the current difficulties of the United States and Europe. This confidence underpins Xi Jinping's bold moves on the world stage. Just as President Trump retreats to the language of America first, China is embedding itself in international institutions and promoting itself as a champion of globalisation and efforts to tackle climate change. On some measures, it's working. Surveys by the Pew Research Centre across dozens of nations suggest the US and China now excite roughly the same level of goodwill. But the key audience is at home. The vital question for Xi Jinping's second term as leader whether he can push through painful economic reform in conditions of slowing growth. Some economists warn that time is running out to fix this problem without a crisis.
0: And that was our China editor, Carrie Gracie. Venezuelans head to the polls on Sunday to vote for governors in the country's 23 states. Uh, The opposition, which two months ago was on the streets protesting, says it will participate in these elections to put pressure on the government. Uh, The Maduro administration has come under criticism both at home and abroad for what its critics call a creeping dictatorship. Our South America correspondent Katie Watson reports from Venezuela's industrial heartland.
7: In Venezuela's industrial heartland, government candidate Rafael La Cava is working the crowds with his signature hip-hop moves. Thousands squeezed in to celebrate the end of his energetic campaign. Long live Hugo Chavez, he shouts. The former president's legacy lives on here. Many feel he is still the country's true leader. In the distance, a giant blow-up Chavez doll bobs about in the air. It feels like a music concert. Lacava the rock star. He wants to channel the populism of Chavez and has the same narrative too.
1: These people need leadership. These people are with us. And you've seen that today. And that's what we need, <laughs> that you tell the world. But that they this, also that need Venezuela.
7: medicines. What can you do for that? Can because
1: you... we, we, we've been blocked by the US. We've been blocked by the Occidental... Countries.
7: You can't just blame the United States, Europe. Surely there's some responsibility on the government for people not being able to access medicines, food. We
1: have been blocked by, as I said, one of the most powerful countries in the world.
7: What we've just seen is been pretty incredible. The crowd stretch as far as the eye can see. There were... Thousands of people, La like was throwing out football, T-shirts, water, everybody just trying to, you know, grab something, a bit of him. It just shows that despite the fact that the government has lost support both here in Venezuela and abroad, there is still a, a core number of Venezuelans here that want to continue a revolution. But less than an hour up the road in Puerto Cabello, Venezuela's biggest port, Not everyone feels the same way. I head to El Palito, a poor neighbourhood overlooking the country's most important oil refinery. I've come into the local shop, and the shelves are pretty bare. And in the front counter, there are pots of oil and of butter, and little bags of coffee. Now the shopkeeper's done that uh, to make portions more manageable and more affordable. But even so, people can't afford that because prices keep on rising. A woman comes into the shop complaining. She's called Lilia Beatriz, and she's 60 years old. She's not had clean drinking water for over a month now, and government-subsidised food isn't being delivered either. She can only afford to eat one meal a day.
6: The president
11: says, U.S. this, U.S. that, for God's sake, stop paying attention to the United States and come and see what is happening to us in Venezuela. If you have sanctions slapped on you, it is because you are doing something wrong.
7: Lilia Beatriz says you won't be voting on Sunday because there's little point. Nothing will change. In the run-up to these regional elections, the government's been accused of confusing voters with late date changes and claims that the ballot sheet is unfair. Margarita Lopez-Meyer is a professor at the Central University of Venezuela.
6: The idea is to discourage people going out to participate. No, there's too many tricks. No, what for? The government's not going to let these guys govern anyway. They he's going to put them in prison, or he's going to do fraud. They do all these things because they know they cannot win. Then they have to do all these kinds of tricks and all these kinds of violations to the law. But basically, I think it is to divide the opposition... You know, and to confuse the participation of the people.
0: And that was Katie Watson with that report, and she brings us to an end of this edition of NewsHour. So thanks very much for listening. And from Owen bennett Jones here in London, goodbye.
6: NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc podcasts.